I'm Holiday. I'm Tarrant. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warmth? Hi, folks, and welcome to Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs. I'm your host, Scotty J, and, well, before we get into the show, I would like to take this opportunity to uh, really go out there and thank everybody who stuck by the show in all this downtime. Um, it was unintended. Trust me, it was really unintended. Uh, COVID happened. You know, Jeff and I have, have not seen each other physically since before COVID began, and we worked on ways to try to record and it, it just didn't work out like we intended and for a while i honestly thought about you know closing shop but i'm taking a step um i'm making some changes to the show i mean you heard it there in the intro there's some new things added and i think now um really now i want to bring the show to you guys how I hear it in my head. Yeah, there's going to be sound clips. There's going to be some effects. There's going to be a lot of things. But the main thing that I have to learn, and I hope you guys stick with me through this, is really how to do this as a solo artist instead of setting up the punch, the joke for the punchline. I've got to find my voice on this. So once again, I thank everybody who stuck through this. I know it was a long dry spell, but I've been reading some books, I've been doing things, and basically what we're doing is, uh, it's going to be a new direction, like I said. We're going to go back and visit some old friends, we're going to see some new crimes, but I'm also throwing in missing persons, kidnappings, you know, trying to expand out a little bit. So, now that we've cleared everything up. Let's get our show started. And most of you remember before Phil and I had done Velisca. Well, we're going back to Velisca. But it's different because Velisca was just one piece of a larger crime spree that happened. It is the most famous mass killing in the early 20th century. It just happened to be the last in a line of mass killings for a particular killer who we really don't know who he is. Now, to understand this and how this came to be, we need to go back to the year 1898. Yeah, you're correct, or I'm correct at least, 1898. So let's board the train, because the train is going to play an important part in this, and let's check this out. So we're going to the town of West Brookfield, Massachusetts. Now, there was a baker and a farmer by the name of Francis Newton. Well, sometime around 1888, Francis married Sarah, and they adopted a young Swedish girl that they named Elsie. Now, everyone in the community, these guys were the perfect family. Mom, dad, daughter, you know, they had the farm, they had 
the bakery, everything was great. On the morning of January 9th, neighbors noticed that no one had no one had been seen in a couple of days. Now, some of the neighbors, Elmer Newcomb, William Barris, and I love Gene, Gene the dancing machine, and William Eaton came over to, and took care of the animals because, you know, a few days, you know, cows probably need to be milked. A few hours later, Eaton returned with Arthur Rice, George Pike, and Herbert Duane to check on the family. Approaching the house, they found a broken window and went in the house through the window. Now inside the house was dark, and they found a lamp, so they lit it. And walking through the house, they found that the room where the girls shared. Now, from what I understand, this is like an L-shaped house, so the girls were in one section of the house, and Francis was over in another. Now, inside the room, they found Sarah and Elsie, and they were in bed. The covers had been pulled up over their heads. Slash marks had been found on their chest. The pajamas pushed up to their breasts, and their heads had been soaked in... Or, sorry. Their heads had been crushed with the flat end of an axe. The bed itself had been soaked in blood, and the murder weapon had been left near the bodies. So the guys decided that they're going to go deeper into the house. They found Francis in his bed in pretty much the same condition. The men exited the house where they found a woodpile that had been covered in kerosene, but unfortunately the woodpile didn't catch fire. Or I should say fortunately. Now in all of this, there was one person missing. The farmhand, Paul Mueller. Paul was a short, stocky man who spoke broken English with a heavy German accent. He had unkept greasy black hair and an unkept mustache. Mueller had been working for noon since he left his last employer. Now, word around town was Francis was a bit of a taskmaster on the farm, and we're not exactly sure what caused Mueller to act out in this manner. It could have been the money that Francis took out of his pay for lunch, or the money for the sled that Mueller made, or it is just quite possible that Francis caught Mueller watching Elsie undress. Honestly, we just don't know. All we do know is that the night of the murders, Mueller was last seen heading for the train tracks, heading south, possibly to Boston, leaving history altogether. Or did he? So we're going to jump ahead two years. We're going to uh, Trenton Corners, New Jersey. On November 6th, Bob Henson had visited his friend Mary Van Lu. Now, Bob didn't have a normal address, you know, he kind of traveled around a bit. So he kept his clothes with friends and family, and wherever he was, he just particularly changed. Now, on the 6th, Bob and Mary had a fight. Once again, the historical record's not quite sure on what the fight was over. All we know is that there was an argument, and, you know, you get in the heat of the argument, Bob could have threatened Mary. Around 11 p.m., neighbors noticed a reddish glow coming from the direction of Mary's house. Once neighbors arrived, they noticed the house is on fire and there's no way to save whoever's inside. They managed to save a table and a clock, but you know, that was about it. Now, the assumption at the time of this accident was that Mary and her child had been in Trenton visiting her husband, George. Uh, George wasn't with them. Looking around the house, they found a pool of blood at the back door and a bloody axe. Once the fire had been extinguished, well, they found Mary and her child in the remains of the basement. 
The bodies had been charred beyond recognition, and the water pump out back was covered in bloody handprints. Naturally, Bob was the suspect, but eh, there really wasn't enough, enough evidence to convict him. And without that, there really wasn't nobody to charge. At 9.45 p.m. on May 12, 1901, in Pisaquatis County, Maine, Reminds me of the song from um, Pete's Dragon. Neighbors noticed a reddish glow near the Allen farm. The next morning they went to investigate and they found the house a smoking ruin. J. Wolseley Allen was dead in the barn near two pools of blood. Now looking into the smoking ruins of the house, they found Mrs. Allen and their daughters dead in separate rooms. Now the working theory at the time was that the family had been killed while they were still awake and the fire was an attempt to cover up the murders. Police believed a man by the name of Henry Lambert had been the assailant, but the community rallied around Henry and charges were dropped. Now from 1903 to 1906, this murderer moved up and down the East Coast from Florida to Nova Scotia, usually in isolated communities. He attacked usually on a Sunday night, at a house near the railroad. He used the blunt side of an axe, smashing their heads, and it was noticed that he usually molested the younger daughter. Then he would set the house on fire to cover his tracks, hop on a train, and escape. In 1906, after the murder of the Lylerly family in Barber Junction, North Carolina, suddenly the murder stopped. We're not sure... Working theory is that he was in jail for another crime, and you know most people tend to believe this. In 1908, the Frasers, Frazier, Georgia, the Hart family is the first family that bears the signature of our killer. Now, in each case, the family would be bludgeoned with the flat side of an axe. But there was a change to the scene. Often, there was a broken window that the killer entered and left through. The mirrors would have sheets over them, the families would have blankets pulled up over their heads, and oil lamps would ha be missing their hoods. You, you know, the, the little glass, um, well, they call them shades. There were glass shades that they put over the, over the lamp to protect the flame. And a prepubescent daughter would, be mis or would have her nightgown pushed up to her chest, and she would be masturbated on. Also, the doors were locked and jammed to prevent people from coming in. Now, each of these communities were near a railroad track, which allowed for the quick escape. Now, we're going to cover this with a lot of the killers that we're going to go over. And they have something that's called a double event. Usually, they strike twice on the same day. And our guy had his on in, uh, September 17, 1911 in Colorado Springs. Now, to understand what happened, we got to jump ahead to the 20th. You know, three days ahead, nothing major. Now, Nettie Ruth, she was on her way to her sister's house, Mary Alice Burnham, with a sewing project that they were working on. Now, Nettie knocked on the door and there was no answer. The door was locked and she noticed that the grocery bill was hanging on the front door. So, Nettie went to the neighbor. Or, actually, what she tried to do was look in the windows, but since the shades were down, she couldn't see in the house. Now, neighbors hadn't seen Mary in a couple of days, and they were concerned, so they placed a call to the sanitarium where her husband, A.J., lived and worked. 
His boss said, well, he wasn't there. AJ was too sick to really leave his room. So the neighbor had a key, and they went into the house. Now, Nettie, and I'm, we've all done this. I mean, honestly, it, it's human nature. You go walking into a house that's dark, and you're like, well, I hope nobody's dead in this motherfucker. Well, Nettie regretted it because they came out running. Because they they came out running because they smelled something foul. Now, Mary and John, age three, and their daughter, Nellie Emma, age six, were all found dead. Their heads were bashed in with the blunt end of an axe. May and John were killed where they slept, but Nellie was killed after she woke up. Or she was killed somewhere else and moved. Now, this is, was another, another kind of signature to the crime. They would find the body stacked up in, in one room. Which led that they were killed elsewhere in the house and moved. Now, the police didn't mention it in the report, but May had been molested. Now, they found an open window the killer had entered through and a wash basin, basin with bloody water, indicating he cleaned up after the murders. The killer had left a bloody fingerprint and on the wall and a handprint on the axe handle. The police had focused on AJ, as they would because it's a spousal, but he had an alibi because he was sick with tuberculosis and he really couldn't commit the murders because he was in a weakened state. Well, with all the activity focused on this house, somebody in the crowd noticed that something wasn't quite right going on here. There was no activity happening down the street at the Wayne house. The police found the back door screen cut, and as they forced their way in, they found three more bodies, all dead the same way that the, uh, the neighbors were. And... The thing is, is the police really refused to believe that this was connected, that this was done by the same man, and they just left it as two isolated incidents with no one being charged. Now, the murders continued through 1911 and 1912, but this time they were moving east and west across America, hitting states like Illinois and Kansas. Due to the rural nature of the attacks and the availability of railroad for escapes, this man remained uncatchable. Now, many authorities refused to believe that these were all linked together until the killer struck Willisca, Iowa in June 9, 1912. On Sunday, it was a Sunday again, folks, the Moore family attended a church function. Now, that night, as they were getting ready to go home, two neighbor girls, Ina and Leah Stillinger, called their parents said hey we want to stay with us we want to stay with the Moore family tonight can we stay mom mom and dad says yes and the girl stayed over well this would be the last time that any of them were seen alive the next morning as we've seen neighbors noticed something weird is going on no one's checked on the animals a neighbor went to get Ross the brother to, to check on the family Ross had to force the door open and found the house was dark. Shades were drawn, shades on the lamps were removed, mirrors were covered. Now moving into the downstairs parlor, that's where the Stillingen girls were sleeping and he found them with their heads smashed in with the blunt side of an axe, lying in a pool of blood with blankets drawn up over the head. Now Hank Horton, he's the town sheriff, 
he arrives at this point. I'm, I'm sure somebody said, hey, go get the sheriff. Run, run, go get the sheriff. Hank went upstairs and found the rest of the Moore family dead in the same manner as the Stillinger girls. The murder weapon was found near the Stillinger girls, along with a slab of bacon that the killer had used as a masturbatory aid, and Leah was found with no panties on. Once again, the wash basin was found with bloody water, and a window was open, or was found open where the killer, killer had entered and made his escape. The National Guard was called to lock down the scene, and bloodhounds were called in, but they lost a scent at the Nottaway River. Now, because this happened in such a small community, people became more vigilant and reporters descended on the scene. And this story was so popular across the country that it knocked the Titanic off of the front page of the newspaper. If you guys remember, the Titanic sank on April, I want to say April 9th. So, you know, three, two months ahead of time, Titanic's still in the news because bodies were washing up in Europe and Nova Scotia and other places. And you get a crime like this that just knocks the Titanic out. So looking at the evidence, police and reporters began to link this crime to others in different states that had the same characteristics. Horton called in a PI named O'Leary to help with the investigation because you know, that's what they did at the time. Now the first suspect they looked at was Frank Jones. Now don't worry, Frank's going to appear in the story again. He was Joe Moore's former boss. Moore started his own... Joe went to start off his own business. And he took some of Jones's customers. But despite all this, there was really nothing bad going on between the guys. The case went cold after that. Now in 1914... A P.I. by the name of James Newton Wilkerson arrived to help with the case. Now, Wilkerson worked for the Burns Detective Agency, who was hired by the state of Iowa. See, what they did back in, this, in these days, the village would put together, or the town would put together a reward, and they would hire a private detective to solve the case. His payment was the reward money for a successful case. Now, in the early days of the case, C.W. Toby was brought in to try and solve the case. He stayed on the case until the fall of 1912, when he was moved to Chicago. W.S. Gordon was next, but by the winter of 1912-1913, leads had dried up. Wilkerson was the next one to come on the scene after money was raised for his fees. Well, immediately, Wilkerson focused on Jones because Jones was rich. Obviously. Rich man, he's got the money and the means. In his mind, Jones could hire a man to kill Moore and pay for him to leave town. Wilkerson met a reporter by the name of Jack Doyle, and the two of them began to hatch a scheme to get Jones to admit he, he had anything to do with the murder. Well, their first attempt failed. So, a few weeks later, a reporter using the name of Daly met with Jones saying he had information that linked Jones to the crime. Now, if Jones paid him twenty-five grand. well, the reports would just vanish. And see, this was something PIs would do. They would get a reporter, they'd say, hey, this is the plan, we're going to blackmail him, and then we're set. Well, Jones didn't pay the money, which made Wilkerson mad. 
Now, Wilkerson decided he was going to keep the pressure up on Jones for years. So in July of 1914, a family in Blue Island, Illinois, was murdered by an axe. Now, Wilkerson, this man's desperate to get Jones arrested for the crime, so he framed it on Jones. The killer in this case was named William Mansfield, and Wilkerson decided he could use this to link Jones to three other murders. Rumors began to circulate, and with this case, they still do, about Jones's wife having an affair with Moore, or, you know, uh, Jones, or Moore having an affair with Jones's wife. E- either way, the rumor of the affair still persists, which is a reason to kill the family. Now, there have been no evidence whatsoever of this r- rumor being true. Now, through 1915 and 16, Wilkerson tried repeatedly to get Jones arrested and charged with the crime, but the district attorney would not go through with it. No matter what Wilkerson tried in his bag of tricks, Jones was never involved. Now, in 1916, Jones ran against Ratcliffe in the DA election. Wilkerson and Boyd decided that they were going to use this time to turn the public support from Jones. So what do these two idiots do? Well, they began to send out flyers saying that Jones was was responsible for the murders of the Moore family and the Stillinger girls. The election of the county DA fell to an inexperienced player, and Wilkerson loved this idea because this was a man who was not familiar with how the county DA system worked, so he convinced this DA that Mansfield was responsible for the Moore murder and had him charged. So Mansfield was extradited over to Iowa where Wilkerson spent two nights, and and I'm going to put this in quotes, sweating a confession out of him. Mansfield was brought before a grand jury, but the jury refused to indict him. Well, Wilkerson, looking at this defeat, he, he decides to say, well, Jones just bought the jury. That's why I failed. Now, Jones, by this point, he was tired of Wilkerson's shit. He hired his own detective and launched a libel suit against Wilkerson. So what does Wilkerson do? Well, now he turns this into a trial against Jones and packed a courtroom with his supporters. Now, different stories were presented in court and the grand jury discredited them. But this prompted the grand jury to decide to take a look at Jones. Wilkerson decided that to use this time to his advantage. So he goes on a big tent revival circuit to drum up support. In February of 1917, the grand jury was called to investigate Jones. Now hearing this information, Wilkerson decided... I'm going to rob his store. Well, the summer of 17, a Kansas school teacher by the name of Nellie Byers was raped and murdered. The suspect was Archibald Sweet, and despite having a prior history of these type of attacks against women, well, he said he didn't do it. Now, you're probably asking yourself, okay, well, how does this fit into everything that's going on? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to tell you. The DA, 
called the Burns Agency who sent, who else? Wilkerson to secure the man. Now, Wilkerson wanted a reward, but since the suspect was already caught, there was no there wasn't a reward. Wilkerson was pissed. So, he he was convinced that Sweet was innocent and had him freed. Then the two men began to work out a plan to convict an innocent man of the crime. But that failed, and Sweet was convicted. In 1917, Jones's detectives met with Sweet and had him file an affidavit. Jones held on to this in notes from the Nellie's or notes from Nellie's case, and he put these in his office. Wilkerson wanted these files and began to put together a crew to get a hold of them. Well, Jones figured this was going to happen, so he put a spy in Wilkerson's group. The spy reported back on the plans. So on the night that the robbery was going to happen, the crooks met with Joan, or the crooks tried to break in. And as soon as they break into the office, they're met with Jones and Sheriff Horton. Well, Wilkerson played all this off that like nothing ever happened. You know, didn't happen. I wasn't involved. Nothing happened. I'm good. Well, 1917, the Burns Agency began to face financial problems. Several lawsuits were brought up against the agency in other states, and lawsuits were brought up against our boy Wilkerson. I wonder why. Trouble also hit Wilkerson and his accomplice Boyle, as his accomplice Boyle was arrested in Kansas City for drug possession. The grand jury was reconvened in 1917, but this time they had access to the files Jones had on Wilkerson. And the grand jury got a little bit smart on this, so they hired their own investigators to look into all of this. Well, the original witnesses that Wilkerson had in the trial, well, they began to all change their stories from the script. The investigators found out that the witnesses were not in the locations that they originally testified to on the night of the murders. This time around, the grand jury focused their attention on Wilkerson who just flat out refused to answer any questions. Now, because of that, the judge put him in jail overnight for con- or for contempt. Now, despite all of this, this son bitch still had supporters, and in his arrogance, he billed the town for $595.29, which they paid. The Thompson bill was introduced later that same year, and it was aimed at stopping Wilkerson's activities from the state. Now, I'm not ex- exactly sure what this bill is, but as we could tell from here it was probably set up to um, stop underhanded private investigator actions. Well, we're going through all this, and now the Iowa Attorney General, Horace Havner, he began to investigate the case. He decided to focus on a man named Reverend L.G.J. Kelly. Now, if you watch a lot of uh, paranormal cases about this, or paranormal shows about this case, Kelly's name comes up a lot. Now, he was in town that night. He even attended the same program. But he stayed with a local reverend that night. 
and became fascinated with the case. He and Kelly. I get the feeling that Kelly was a man who really wanted to help, but he didn't know how to go about it. But because he did this, no one took him seriously. Not only that, but our man Kelly has some skeletons in his closet. And they're not pretty folks. See, in 1913, Kelly was trying to be a writer and placed an advertisement in a paper for a secretary. One woman applied, and re he replied back to her in a letter that, well, she's going to have to pose news for him from time to time. Yeah, you know, he wanted some uh, naked artwork. And in 1914, he was arrested for using the mail to solicit a minor. Kelly spent some time in a D.C. mental institution. And like I said, he talked about the case, which caused some people to believe that he was the killer. But the thing is, Kelly wasn't involved in the murder. To the, like I said, to this day... People still believe that Kelly was involved in this. His name appears in many paranormal shows. And, like I said, he, he wanted to help, but all of his talking and his interest in the case made him a suspect. Now, they believe that... Hand, sorry. Hanver and Wilkerson believed so strongly that Kelly was involved that he was indicted for killing Leela Dillinger. Wilkerson got to Kelly first and took him to Illinois to um, work out his story. He then sent Kelly's belongings to Kansas City under the name F. Jones, once again trying to frame poor Mr. Jones. Unfortunately, th this case against Kelly just fell apart. The sad thing is, is no one was ever arrested or convicted for the Moore murders. Or for that fact, any of the murders involved in this string. The killer just seems to have vanished in the night. Or did he? See, a lot of you have wrote to me before about trying to cover the Hinter Kaifak murder. And when I was researching this story, Hinter Kaifak came up. And it has a lot of the same hallmarks in... I'm trying to think of the right word here. Um, patterns and similarities that all these murders in America did. Now, if this crime was considered or considered committed by the same man, why so long? Well, the best thing we can say is after Velisca, he committed one more murder and made his way across America got to the East Coast and caught a ship to Europe. You know, as we know, in the late 19-teens, World War I broke out, so if he was committing murders in Europe, they were covered by the news coverage of the war. Once the war was over, no murder other than Hinter Kaifak is recorded. This would mean that the killer would be in his 80s and this would be the last crime that he got away with. So this is going to ask the question, is it Paul Mueller? Well, evidence would say, yeah, it is. But it's circumstantial at best. He never left anything 
behind to say that he committed the crimes. Many people still want to put the blame on Kelly, but me, I personally think that it was Paul Mueller who committed these crimes. Well, looks like we've reached our destination, folks. I thank you all for staying with me and rejoining me as I get back into the foray of podcasting, and especially with this show. It, it, it's come to a... As much as I love doing my history shows, this has kind of been my baby. And I, I'm happy to finally bring these shows to you how I hear them in my head. So if you're looking for the show, we're on, oh shit, it's been so long, Podcast Garden, all your major podcasting apps, and Apple Podcasts. There's a Facebook group dedicated to the, to the show. Join us there, request a case, and like I said, I'm back, I'm solo, we'll see how it goes. So for Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs... I'm the Great White Snark Scotty J. Catch you later, everyone. This concludes our broadcast day. Good night, and God bless. Woo!